Good morning, church. Hang on. Very, very aware. I don't want to destroy this wonderful paperclip chain that the kids have been making. I also don't want to fall over and like hurt myself. So, good morning. Please, if you have your Bible, if you could just turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. <clears throat> when Abraham, sorry, when Abraham, Abram, not Abraham yet, bear with me. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground and then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham. For you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you. From generation to generation, this is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised, you must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. Okay. Well, that's this morning's passage. But I've got a question for you. Where were you in 2009? Stick with me. This will make sense. What were you doing? What did life look like? What has happened and what's changed between then and now? I can tell you, for me, an awful lot. <laughs> an awful lot has happened in my life since 2009. In 2009, I had no children. Uh, I still had hair, if you can believe it. Uh, none of it was on my face. Shock horror. Uh, thank you, Lord, that it is now. Man. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what I didn't... And the, uh, sorry, and the hair that I did have hadn't even started turning gray yet. You know, in the time since 2009, I've changed my career twice. Uh, I've become a father twice over. I've moved house twice. Um, I've joined Freedom Church. I learned guitar. I preached my first sermon. Uh, I've made new friends. I've lost loved ones. 
I've broken a couple of ribs, a couple of toes, got in and out of shape about five times. I'm somewhere on that journey again. <laughs> you can choose which direction. I won't be upset. Uh, we've had a global pandemic. The queen has died and a new king has ascended to the throne. And I've genuinely lost count how many prime ministers we've had. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I don't dare look up the BBC website just in case we've got another one. Um, and that's just a few of the things that have happened in the last 13 years. 13 years is a pretty long time. Um, it is also the exact amount of time that passes between the end of chapter 16 and the start of chapter 17 where we are today. It is, thanks, thanks Keith. Keith just went, nice link. I was like, <laughs> and you know, it, it starts, it says, when Abraham, when Abram, I can do that. When Abram was 99 years old, like how mad is that? You know, in the blink of an eye, we've jumped ahead 13 years. It's like a Tarantino movie where you kind of jump in around the timeline with no idea where you're going next. Um, think about how much your life has changed during the last 13 years, since 2009. All the ups and the downs, and imagine what it must have been like for Abram to hold on to a seemingly unfulfilled promise for that amount of time. Only he hadn't just been trusting in God for 13 years. In Genesis 12, we read that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He was 86, year old, 86 years old when he foolishly tried to help God uh, by having a son with Hagar. The servant, you know, taking her as his as, as second wife in Genesis 16. So now, here we are 13 years after that, which means he had waited in faith, albeit making many foolish mistakes along the way, for the best part of a quarter of a century to see the fulfillment of God's promise to give him a son through Sarai, his wife. When we read about Abraham having faith so great that it was credited to him as righteousness, sometimes we just read those words and we forget about the actual scale, the amount of time he had to trust in God. For many of you in this room, that's literally your entire lifetime. <laughs> Obviously, it's me, I'm one of them. Uh, so here we are. Abraham is presumably minding his own business when Scripture tells us, boom, out of nowhere, God appears and announces himself in a way that removes any doubts as to whose presence Abram is now in. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is not just a name. God isn't just saying, this is my name, as if he's saying, hi, I'm John. He's saying, I am. El Shaddai, God Almighty, it is a declaration of his being, his power, and his authority. By this name, El Shaddai, God reveals his person and character to Abram. And whilst we know that El Shaddai is conventionally translated as God Almighty, there is actually some debate as to what the name El Shaddai literally translates to. A traditional analysis of the name is this. It says, God, El who, sa, is sufficient, day, el sadeh, el shaddai. Some scholars actually say the root of the word shaddai comes from a different word, the word shaddai. 
which means to shed or to pour out. So by that translation, we can infer that God is the God who pours out blessings, who gives richly, who, abundant, who is abundant and continual in his giving and is pouring out. Another prominent scholar suggests that Shaddai comes from the root word Shaddad, which means to display power. Look at the richness of this. In the Septuagint, which is an ancient translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures um, from its original Hebrew into Greek, um, which is so, it's actually from before the time of Jesus, translates El Shaddai with the Greek word Pantocrator, which I think I'm saying correctly, meaning the one who has his hand on everything. I don't know which translation is the most accurate. And to be honest, the, the very idea that there is a single word in any language that fully encapsulates the nature of God seems kind of absurd. Um, but to my mind, it seems that all these different translations and understandings of the name El Shaddai offer different shades of one beautiful truth that all point to the character of God. God announces himself as our God who is all-sufficient, who pours out blessings, who displays his mighty power, and whose sovereign hand is on everything. Wow. I can say, I don't know which of these understandings God was attempting to convey to Abram, but however you slice it, it is quite the reintroduction. And having broken his 13-year silence, God goes on to command Abram to do something seemingly impossible. He says, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Seems like a completely impossible request to live a blameless life. Surely there's no way that even God could really expect him, or anyone for that matter, to live a life that was completely blameless. Is it even possible for a human to live a blameless life? If so, why did we need Jesus to come and do it? <laughs> but you know what? Let's keep reading, and I'm going to come back to this question um, of living blamelessly. But spoiler alert, the answer is yes. It is possible for both Abraham, as he is now, and for us to live a blameless life, but maybe not in the way that you think. Verse 2, I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. God demonstrates to Abram that he had not forgotten the covenant promises that he had made all those years before. As we've sung this morning, his plans are still to prosper. He has not forgotten us. This is, what, this is what he's saying to Abram. My plan is still to prosper you. I have not forgotten the covenant promises that I made to you. He is reminding of that. And though it had been 24 years since the promise was first made, it, and surely it's probably entered Abram's mind at some point that God had forgotten, this restating of their covenant was a reaffirmation of those words and a reminder that God never goes back on his promises. In fact, in many ways, as we continue to read, we see that God raises the stakes. Verse 3. At this point, Abram fell face down on the ground. Seems a fairly appropriate response. 
Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. You will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. Having restated and reaffirmed his covenant promise to Abram, God does something that is incredibly significant when he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. See, every time there's a name change in Scripture, it's linked to a destiny change. Okay? We see this time and time again across Scripture. Simon, the fisherman who denied Christ three times, becomes Peter, Petros, the rock on which Christ promises to build his church. Peter became the first person. He went from a denier to being the first person in all of human history to preach the gospel of Christ resurrected. He became the first Christian in all of human history to preach to non-Jews. Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Israel whose 12 sons become the 12 tribes of God's chosen people. There are many other examples throughout Scripture that testify to the fact that when God calls you by a new name, it signifies not just a new identifier, but a new identity and a promise of a new destiny. We see it all throughout the pages of Scripture. But this is Genesis, a book whose title literally means New Beginnings. When God changes Abram's name to Abraham, it's the first time we see this principle play out. That's what I love about the Old Testament, particularly Genesis. You know, if, you, if you're looking for the, the practice of Christianity, they say, look in the New Testament. If you're looking for the person of Christianity, look in the Gospels. But if you're looking for the principles, look in the Old Testament. And that's what we're seeing here this morning. See, Abram's old name meant father of many, which would have been a particularly hard name to bear for a man with no legitimate heir, especially in a culture where the larger your family was, the more important and apparently favored by God you were. It's the equivalent of me having a name which means man with long flowing hair. <laughs> All right, don't laugh too much. No, I'm joking. <laughs> you know, th- that name, if I was to walk around calling myself, hi, I'm a man with long flowing hair, all it would do is highlight the fact that I am bald. <laughs> you know, in the same way, being called Abram would have only served to highlight that this father of many was lacking in children. I imagine when Abram first heard God say, I'm going to change your name, he was probably momentarily feeling quite relieved. You know, as if he was thinking ahead to all the awkward conversations around the campfire that he would avoid if God just changed his name to Steve. But rather than that, God went in a surprising direction and changed his name to Abraham. Abraham, not just meaning father of many, but meaning father of of nations. He went from having a name that was quite uncomfortable to a name that was quite frankly absurd. (laughs) It was absolutely crazy for a childless man to be called father of nations. Imagine around the campfire that night when Abram announced his new name, Abraham, 
And those who were gathered, sorry, imagine that night, just rewind there, imagine around the campfire that night when Abraham announced to those who were gathered that his name wasn't going to be Abram anymore. The people around him must have thought, ah, finally he has realized that his name is a bit unfortunate and is going to change it to something a little more suitable. Instead, his new God-given name had completely upped the ante and increased the burden. But in changing Abram's name to Abraham, God wasn't trying to make his life harder. No, this name change was a gift by which God was going to remind him every day, every time he said his name, It was a reminder of the covenant promises that had been made to him and as a prophetic announcement of his new destiny. As I've already said, this is the first of many examples through Scripture where God changes someone's name to signify a change in their destiny. And no matter how crazy and unlikely it sounded that a 99-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife could have children that would grow into a great nation, God named him Abraham, knowing that he would accomplish the meaning of that name in his perfect timing. And sure enough, as mad as it sounded, it came to pass. The very fact that we are gathered here this morning is proof of God's faithfulness to Abraham. And this name-changing business isn't just for the heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Jacob and Peter. It's for us, too. We, who were born into sin and called sinners, are now called saints. Not because we no longer fall prey to sin. Not because we're perfect people. We are decidedly imperfect But because of Jesus, our destiny is sealed in the victory of the cross. Our new name reflects our new identity as co-heirs with Christ. And our destiny as citizens of God's eternal kingdom. How good is this? And as mad and unlikely as it seems that I, Dave Brown, or any of us in this room for that matter, with all our faults and failures, should be called saints. That's exactly what God has named us. When we gave our lives to him, we became saints. Not because of anything that we have done, but as a reminder of what he has promised to accomplish in us through his grace in his perfect timing. That is who you are. If you know Jesus as Lord of your life and have repented of your sins, then he calls you a saint. I can't help but smile. Does that mean that once you become a Christian, then you become a perfect person? Of course not. Of course not. If you've ever met a Christian, and I'm assuming all of you have, you're in a room full of them, Uh, you know that's not true. (laughs) Uh, No matter how hard some would like to pretend it is, being a saint is not a matter of perfect behavior. It's a matter of our identity in Christ. It's not about being perfect people, but the covering grace 
of a perfect God. So this morning we find ourselves in a similar position to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, living with a new name and a new identity that serves to remind us of God's covenant promises to us and calling us forward towards our destiny in him. How are we to respond to this? What is God's expectation of us as saints? Well, this is where we come back to God's direction to Abraham to walk blamelessly. I've already said that we are not perfect. <laughs> that being a Christian doesn't make, you, make it easy and even possible to live a life of sinless perfection. We know Abram certainly wasn't perfect and he made plenty of errors before and after this moment. So what on earth does this mean to walk blamelessly? What is God asking of us? Well, the word translated here as blameless is the Hebrew word tamim, which can also be translated as completely, fully, or wholeheartedly. Now imagine for a moment, you are standing on the edge of a great chasm. You're on one cliff edge, looking at the cliff edge of another cliff that is 100 meters away, and between you is nothing but blackness. You need to get from one side to the other, but the problem is, it's 100 meters across, and you've only got 50 meters of rope. But then, I come bounding up, all excited, stand next to you and say, don't worry, I've got 50 meters of thread. Why don't we tie the thread to your rope, and then you'll be able to make it all the way across? Well, obviously, you, you would immediately say, no thanks, Dave. And I'd say, why? Don't you trust your rope? Well, of course I trust the rope. I just don't trust your thread. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's change the scenario. What if uh, we had 90 meters of rope and just 10 meters of thread? How about that? And again, you would say, no. Okay, what about 99 meters of rope and one meter of thread? And you would still say, no, and quite rightly, because even one meter of thread would leave you just as dead at the bottom of that chasm as 100 meters of thread would. What you need is 100 meters of rope, right? You see, in this illustration, the rope represents God and trusting in him. And the thread represents us and trusting in the things that we do. And when we come to what it means to walk blamelessly, to walk wholeheartedly. And we seek to understand what God is really asking of both Abraham and us in this passage today. It's simple. It's got to be 100 meters of rope. Anything else falls short. The direction to walk blamelessly means to live a life that is completely and fully and wholeheartedly reliant on God. To trust him and his promises. To walk in and live out the identity of our new name, saint. To live blameless lives because at the cross, at the cross every sin we ever committed was nailed to the cross with Christ. He has already borne all the blame 
for every sin we will ever commit. That is how we can walk, even though full of faults, without blame. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it or add to it. If we even attempt to add one stitch to the garment of salvation, then the whole thing is ruined. Only in our wholesale devotion to God can we walk blamelessly before him by way of God's grace and through faith. We cannot live faultlessly. But when we wholeheartedly live by the power of Christ, we can walk blamelessly. Thank you, Jesus. And I know all this sounds too good to be true, but it is. Oh, it is. No wonder we call it the gospel, which means good news or joy news. It is truly the best thing you will ever hear. Back in the text, we see that Abraham's change of destiny required him setting himself apart through circumcision. And we too, as saints, are called to live as a people that is set apart. But instead, um, sorry, my brain's just stopped working. But instead of physical circumcision, we are set apart as we cut ourselves off from sin through the power of Christ. We are set apart and we are transformed into the image of Jesus. See, thankfully, not by circumcision. I can almost hear the silent but very insistent hallelujah of every man in the room. Uh, But you see, in the case of Abram, physical circumcision was instructed by God. And although it wasn't an uncommon practice in this time, for the surrounding societies. For most of those surrounding societies, circumcision was different. It was usually a rite of passage for pubescent boys as they became men, or in some cases, a rite uh, that you went through just before marriage, which I can only imagine made for a very uncomfortable honeymoon. But God demanded something different for Abraham and all his male descendants and members of his household. This circumcision was to be, to be performed when a baby was only eight days old. But why? Well, there are a number of reasons why it might be medically beneficial to circumcise a baby. Um, it's proven to reduce the risk of certain infections, which can never be a bad thing when you live in a tent and are surrounded by cattle all the time. Um, there's also evidence to show that the neural pathways that affect pain are less developed at that age. And so whilst I'm sure it never tickles, uh, it's proven to be less painful when you're at that age. But none of this is the reason, though. None of this is the reason why God is asking Abram or Abraham to circumcise himself and all the males in his family. God isn't being pragmatic. He's being prophetic. The meaning of infant circumcision goes beyond a simple medical procedure and speaks to something far greater than just the reduction of infection. See, babies, they're so small, especially at eight days old. All they can do is eat, scream, and poop at eight days old, which is part of why I no longer have hair. Uh, As I say, I've had two of them. So, So why does God insist on their circumcision? 
Well, it can't be a picture of anything that we do. It can't be anything, a picture of anything that we do for God. It can only be a picture of our helplessness and something that God does for us. It's a way of God saying to his people, you are mine. And I love you. You know, while we were worshipping, my daughter Beth, she ran up to me, she grabbed my hand and she squeezed it three times. Which is how she says, I love you. So I squeezed it back. This is just like that. This is God's way of saying, I love you. You are my chosen people. You are mine. For the entirety of their living memory, they would carry this mark on the most intimate and personal part of their body that reminded them that they were set apart for God, that they were to walk in complete and wholehearted devotion to him, and that they were his people, that they themselves were the fulfillment and embodiment of God's miraculous promise to Abraham and Sarah. The circumcision God asked of Abraham was a reminder of his faithfulness to them and every generation to come. And whereas Abraham was instructed to circumcise every male in his household, this side of the cross, we are no longer required to cut the flesh of our bodies or shed blood from our, from our bodies as an outward sign of the covenant with God. No, instead, as saints who have been freed and empowered by the grace of Jesus, we are called to set ourselves apart by cutting off the sinful desires of our hearts as an expression of our devotion and love to Jesus, who shed his blood so that we don't have to. And in doing so, he placed an unbreakable seal on the new covenant of grace. Brothers and sisters, be uplifted, be joyful, be encouraged. Like Abraham, we have been given a new name. Just like Abraham, we will see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises in our lives. In fact, we already live in the fulfillment of some of them. By God's grace, Although we are deeply flawed and imperfect, we can walk blamelessly in wholehearted dependence on the Lord. With circumcised hearts, surrendered to God, who is all-sufficient, who pours out blessing, who displays his mighty power and whose sovereign hand is on everything. We can do that in complete confidence that he who started a good work in us will see it to completion. And as I come to finish, I just want to remind you, this isn't some Christian-themed TED Talk. I'm not here to tell you all this to make you feel good, although it does feel good. You know, I'm not here to, to, uh, to give you a spiritual tickle. Uh, I want to ask every single believer in this room, how does being set apart for God change your life today? What does it look like in your life this week to live wholeheartedly for God in full dependence? Are there any areas in this life 
of yours where you are trying to use thread to cross a chasm where you need rope? Are we trying to put our faith in things that we do when only God can bridge that chasm? I challenge you, recommit yourselves this morning to live as one with a circumcised heart. And if you are here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord, and you would like to, please come speak to me, Keith, or anyone you've seen leading this morning. We would love to introduce you to our beautiful Savior, because he is desperate to meet you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of Scripture, for the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within us. Lord, the guarantee of what is to come, Lord, you have placed your Holy Spirit within us as a guarantee of what is to come, Lord. Not only do we have a new name, we have your Holy Spirit power within us. Lord, we commit ourselves again. We commit ourselves afresh to you. We thank you that through your grace and with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live blamelessly. Lord, we can walk blamelessly. We can lean on you completely. Lord, that you call us saints. And we don't have to be perfect because you are perfect. Lord, what a glorious gift. Holy Spirit, minister to us this morning. We pray that you would highlight any areas in our lives where we are failing to depend on you. And we are trying to do things ourselves. Lord, help us to lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, trusting in him and his wonderful cross that is wondrously complete. Amen.